You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Hey, good morning. It's great to be with you, Taryn. Those, those words were way too kind. That was, that was awesome. I love your church. Love being with you all this morning. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Psalm 18. Psalm 18. If you're brand new to the Bible, Psalm is kind of, Psalms are right in the middle, just a little bit to the left. And uh, Psalm 18, right towards the beginning, the 18th Psalm, actually. Uh, again, my name is Adam Griffin. Uh, Eastside Community Church loves Citizens Church. We are just, I, I'm so blessed to be here, but I represent a lot of people who love you all very much. What we've got to talk about today And Psalm 18 is about our God. But first, I want to talk a little bit about our problems. Have you ever had, have you ever had a problem that was so significant or maybe so new or a suffering that was so severe that it felt like it was, it was, it was taking all of your mind space. It was taking all of your emotional space. It was the most important thing in your life. It's so big that literally nothing else is having room. Like it's so big that you can't get your mind off it. Even as you distract yourself or you try to numb yourself with things, you try to cope with things. The problem is so big that it feels like nothing could possibly be bigger than this right now. Just a massive problem, a massive incident, some huge suffering. What we get to talk about today in Psalm 18 is that no matter how big your problem is, there's a God who's bigger. That no matter how significant your suffering is, there's a God who makes it matter. That's what we see in Psalm 18. It's like, imagine if you were sitting with a friend and you're looking up into space together. You're looking at the night sky and you're looking and you're just talking about how far away the stars are. You're talking about how big everything is. And maybe you say to your friend, you say, look at the moon. The moon, it's so big. Uh, It's just massive. Imagine your friend sitting next to you says, the moon, the moon is not that big. Like, look, I can put my thumb over the moon and the moon disappears. Or I put my hand up and the moon is, it's gone. The moon is not that big. And you would look at your friend and you say, that's, I get what you're saying. I understand what you're saying maybe. And maybe you could say the moon is not that big compared to the universe. But listen to me, to say the moon is small because I can put my thumb over it, that's a problem. That's, that's a problem of perspective. You're saying that because it looks small to you from here that it's not that big. But listen, what you've got is that your thumb is just that much closer to you that it looks like it's bigger than the moon. And what we'll study in Psalm 18 today is that what we see about our God and what we see about our problems is sometimes as people, our problems are so close to us, so in our face, so right in front of us that they seem massive. They seem enormous. They seem to eclipse everything else. And the truth is that is a problem of perspective because your God is bigger than anything you're facing. Your God is stronger than anything you're enduring. And if it seems like your problems have eclipsed him, it's just because they're so close to you that you're missing out on the God that is so much bigger. And so we see in Psalm 18 is something really beautiful about our God. But first, let's start in verse 1. Look at at the way David starts this psalm. I love this. He starts by saying, I love you. This is a great opening to a poem, a letter to our God. I love you, O Lord, that's Yahweh, my strength. And it's not love there, meaning some kind of relational love. Really what he's communicating here is a commitment. You're my God. I 
love you and me. We're together in this. Oh, Lord, my strength. Verse 2 says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And right away at the beginning, you see two of the themes that are going to run throughout the psalm. One is that God is our refuge when we are in trouble. God is a deliverer. And the other, this theme that goes throughout the psalm is about being way high up or way down low. High up being a safe place and being brought low, being a dangerous place. And you see all these, these descriptions, these epithets that David uses for God. Rock, fortress, deliverer, the one who I take refuge, the shield, the horn of salvation. And these are all descriptions of God. But if you read the context of the psalm, you even maybe read the title of it, it'll say this is something that David wrote when he's running, when he's trying to be safe. David literally needs a physical safe place to be. But he's declaring here at the beginning of the psalm, you'll notice he doesn't say, God led me to a rock. God led me to a refuge. God led me to a physical place to be safe. He says, God is that for me. It'd be like saying this. It'd be like us saying, I, I have such a significant issue, maybe mentally or physically that I'm on medication. And you could say God led me to that medication and medication is helping. But what the way the psalmist is saying is like, I, it's not that I'm saying medication is bad. It's not like I'm saying these things are bad. It's just that I know that as good as medication is, what I truly need is the Lord. He's my true medication. And he's not saying, like he's saying, hey, God's my refuge. God's my fortress. Yeah, I need a rock and a fortress, but God's my refuge. It's like saying, hey, work has been so hard lately or school's been so hard lately. I just need a vacation. I need a way to cope. I need a break from things. And it'd be like us saying this morning, yeah, a vacation is great. Finding ways to cope is great. But truly the, the best version, the only true version of getting rest is found only in God. God is my rest. God is my strength. It doesn't mean Christians don't take vacations. Don't hear me say that. You're welcome to. It doesn't mean we don't take breaks. Absolutely, let's do it. But God is always going to be the true rest, the true help, the true refuge. He says, God, God puts me up high. God puts me on this rock. It really means a high cliff. He puts me up where my enemies can't reach me. And then look at what verse 4 and 5 say. It says, the cords of death encompassed me. That means like, imagine him tied up. Like, I am tied up, I'm going to die. The torrents of destruction assailed me. He's in trouble. The cords of Sheol entangled me and the snares of death confronted me. The picture he paints in verse four and five is that I am facing a problem that I am trapped in and I cannot overcome. I am completely wrapped up in this. I'm tied up in this and there is no way for me to get out. This is important because theologically we believe we will all face problems. We will all suffer. Even those who follow God suffer. And the, the good news is not that God says and tries to convince you and gives you the confidence that you can overcome this on your own. No, this truth is right here. I am trapped. I could not handle this by myself. The good news of the gospel is that you have a rescuer and it's not you. It's God. You see, verse six, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. What we would call, the word we would use for that is prayer. David's in the midst of a problem he cannot overcome, and he prays. And if we're all being honest this morning, this is a step that we often miss as we face our problems. We'll say, I'm facing something so incredibly difficult. We think about what 
How can I cope? How can I escape? How can I overcome? David goes, in that moment, I pray. As I've sat in the hospital room with somebody before they go in to have a tumor removed, as I've sat next to the family member who's mourning and grieving the loss of someone they love, as I've sat in the office counseling a couple whose marriage is falling apart, it can be easy for us to start to go like, well, what's the right thing to say? What's the strategy? What's the hope? How do we cope? This is the step I wish all of us were quicker to take is to say to one another, what are we asking God for today? That as we sit in the hospital room, we say, what would we love to see God do? Let's cry out to him. As we sit in grief, we'd say, what would we love to see the Lord do? Let's cry out to him. And not to throw aside every other physical refuge and physical strength and all the gifts God's given us in his common grace, but to say our first step is to say, let's cry out to God in our distress. And look at the end of verse 6. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Uh, Everything else I say today, keep this in mind. God hears his people. Is there a greater gift than that the God of the universe would listen when you talk? The God who created everything, who holds all things together, when you speak to him, he receives your plea. Cried to him in my distress. He heard my cry. Now, verse 7 through 15, this is going to get a little bit crazy here. So hold on, buckle up, listen to this. Psalm 18, verse 7 through 15. This is some of my favorite, favorite stuff in the Psalms. This is if they were going to make a Marvel movie out of the Psalms and they said, where should we start? They should start in Psalm 18. This is like cinematic. It's massive. Listen to David's description of God. So he's in trouble, but he cries out. God hears him. Listen to the way God responds to his prayer and how he describes God in his response. Verse 7. Then the earth reeled and rocked. Now, when I was reading this during the first service, the Lord sent thunder and a storm. So I'm sorry you guys missed that. Maybe the Lord will do it again. It was, it was pretty sweet. But let's, let's check it out. Imagine that. The foundations of the mountains trembled. They quaked because he was angry. Listen to this. Smoke went up from his nostrils, a devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. That's him riding on the back of an angel. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. And at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. How good is that? That's not, that's not on your grandma's mug. That's not there. That's not, I have never walked into Hobby Lobby and seen this painting of Jesus, right? You've never gone to Mardell's and said, hey, show me the collection of Psalm 18 pictures where God's riding, like surfing on an angel and fire's coming out of his mouth and smoke out of his nostrils. That has never happened. This is not the picture of God that we typically draw, physically or in our imaginations. 
We don't think about God like this, but this is the picture. David saying, I was in a problem I could not solve. I prayed and God hear me. God heard me and he responded. And here's how he responded. Earthquakes, lightning, fire in his mouth, smoke in his nostrils. It literally reads like God tore open the heavens and he rode down on the back of angels, just fire out of his mouth. There's a reason we don't love this picture of God. It can feel kind of uncomfortable. In fact, if this is the only text, if you didn't have the rest of the Bible and you only read Psalm 18, our religion would look very different. You might be like, God is terrifying. God is gigantic and scary, and I don't know if I want him to notice me. He's so huge and scary and powerful. It's just lightning and thunder and earthquakes. And the picture there of smoke around him is this picture that like the earth couldn't come close to him. You can't see him fully because if you did, it would just destroy you. That's the picture that David paints of our God. Psalm 18. This is a beautiful start. Remember, I needed refuge. God was that refuge. I prayed because I was in a problem I couldn't solve. And God responded, and how did God respond? Oh, way bigger than I've ever imagined God. And that's why the next couple verses are truly astounding. This will, we gotta put it in context with the rest of scripture and even the rest of the psalm. Look at this. After it talks about how God has this fire from his mouth, this smoke from his nostrils, what does it say, verse 16? He sent from on high and he took me, he drew me up out of the waters. So this picture is this powerful God steps onto the planet, picks up David and says, I'm picking you up out. Now at this point, again, if you don't know the context of what our God is like, that's a very scary thing to say. This dragon-like God picked me up and now he's holding me. He picked me up out of the waters and he did what? Why did he pick him up? Verse 17, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. He says, in essence, hey, I'm not strong enough for this. He had to pick me up. The, the army I faced was too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. Like I had a bad day and it got worse. But, verse 18, the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. That means a safe place. He rescued me. Verse 19 says, because he, what? Delighted in me. Now that's unexpected, isn't it? This massive God. Massive powerful being. I can't even wrap my mind around how to draw what it's describing. And he says, and that God, he delights in me. This is the promise to the human who believes in God. Not that you have a tiny, puny God. Not that you have a weak God. Not that God is available to you, but he really can't do much. No, the comfort to the believer is that God is gigantic and massively powerful. And he has a tender love for you. That he delights in you who fear him, who respect him, who worship him, who love him. Your problem can be the biggest problem anyone has ever faced. It's not bigger than our God. If it seems like it is, then we've got a perspective issue. If your problem's right here and you're going, God, you couldn't possibly help me here. Like who in their right mind gets to look at this God, the God of the universe, and say, you're wrong and you're wrong about me and you can't do anything. What a deception that we would live our life believing that that's true. If only God would set us free 
Look, it keeps going. We don't have time to talk about every verse. But as we look through here, you'll see a couple things about the way David responds. And again, if I were writing a, uh, a Marvel movie or a cinematic picture of the Psalms, this is where I would go. Because David starts to describe himself like a superhero. He starts to describe himself having supernatural, superhuman powers. Look at verse 29. It says, by you, I can run against a troop. In other words, I can face an army by myself and I sprint right at him. And he says, by my God, I can leap over a wall. He says, like if somebody else is in a fortress, I'll just jump right over that fortress. No problem. Then he says, verse 33, he made my feet like the feet of a deer. David's saying, like, I can hop, I can jump around. I can jump up and down. I can run off cliffs. He says, verse 34, he trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. He's like, bring me a bow made of metal and I will use it. I will bend it. Verse 42, he says about his enemies that I beat them as fine as dust. The word we would use is I pulverize them. Like I, I have destroyed my enemies till they're blown away by the wind and I cast them out like the mire of the streets. That means I toss out my enemies like the trash. So this is the picture we have so far, this mighty, powerful God and this seemingly superhuman follower of God. So let's talk about this for a second. I'm sure as you guys talk about Psalms this summer, you'll talk a little bit about the genre of poetry and why that's important. Because what we have here is not David saying, literally, if you follow God, you can jump higher than people who don't follow God. That's not true. It's not why there's like outbreak of godliness in the NBA. Like that's not why, that's totally separate, you know? Like it's not saying that if you are a Christian, therefore you can face an army by yourself. It's not saying, hey, you're gonna be stronger than people physically who don't follow God. That's not the picture. The picture here is a hyperbole. It's, a, it's an exaggeration for emphasis to say, because I follow God and I know what my God is like and he's truly massive and powerful, there's nothing I fear, nothing feel like I could accomplish anything. I could do anything. This is, I used to, I used to be an English teacher before I was a pastor. Uh, I used to teach at Flower Mountain High School, go Jaguars, before they uh, forced transferred me to Hebron, go Hawks, no hard feelings. And then um, I used to teach Shakespeare to 14-year-old kids, which is honestly, it's the greatest job anybody could ever imagine. It's exactly what you'd expect. It's uh, There's no resistance to learning Shakespeare, and everybody loves Romeo and Juliet. So we would teach sonnets to these kids. And of course, in poetry, poetry is hyperbole all the time. It's emphasis for meaning. When I say I would climb the highest mountain for you, what I mean is I really like to hang out with you. But no one likes a poem that just says, I really like hanging out with you. That's not poetic. It's not beautiful. Uh, when I say your eyes are as beautiful as the sunrise, what I mean is I like your face. You know, you don't, you don't say, you have to hyperbolize. Like, uh, Shakespeare wrote this one sonnet, Sonnet 130, that I just love. It's like the anti-poem, where instead of exaggerating, he does the opposite, and he talks about how I don't need to exaggerate. He says this, I've seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. In some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love, reeks, by the way, should never use in a poem. I don't know what they did back then, but anyway. He says, I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music has a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go, my mistress. When she walks, she treads on the ground. 
And yet, by heaven, I think my love is rare as any she belied with false compare. What he's saying, and what's really beautiful is he's saying, I don't have to make up things about how she compares to the most beautiful things in the universe to say, she's just beautiful to me. I, I can tell you, honestly, I'd rather smell perfume than her breath. Like, like I can be honest. And he's saying, uh, do I love to hear her talk? Sure, but I'd rather listen to music. It doesn't mean I don't love her. This is, this is his poem. It's like, it's the anti-poem. And when you read Psalms and you see hyperbole, don't read that as something that's like, why is he lying? Why is he making stuff up? He's not. He's saying, if I want to truly express to you, if I want you to understand just how it feels to trust this God, it's like I could do anything. Hand me a bow of bronze, I could bend it. Show me an army, I'll run against them by myself. Show me their fortress, I will jump over their walls. Why? Because he believes his God is the most powerful force in the universe. Sometimes in Christianity, we get this picture that because God incarnated among us, which is a beautiful part of the gospel that we'll get to here in a second, but sometimes because we view Jesus as small and humble and lowly, then you think the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit must all be small and pliable, and they must obey us. Listen to me, that's not your God. Isn't it good news that your God is not weak and small? that the Holy Spirit is not a firefly that you trapped in your heart. He's not. That the God of the universe, we don't look at this massive universe and go, where does God fit in it? We say, look at this massive universe. If God, if this fits in God, how massive and powerful must our God be? This God is so enormous. It's so powerful that it's astounding that he would then turn to an individual man or woman like you and say, this massive God, I delight in you. I delight in you. Verse 32 says, the God who equipped me with strength, he makes my way blameless. In other words, you can read into that too, like I don't make my way blameless. I'm not perfect. I could not do this on my own. But God does that for me, to me, through me. Look at verse 35. This is one of my favorite verses. You've given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. What made David great? God's what? Gentleness. Like, what? That doesn't even make sense. He just painted this picture of this huge God with fire in his mouth, smoke out of his nostrils, tearing open the heavens to step down into clouds of lightning and hail and, and brimstone. And he's this massive God. And then he says about that God, that God lifts me up and delights in me. And it's his gentleness that makes me great. Think about this biographically for David. David wasn't born great. He wasn't born a prince. In his own family, when they gathered the sons to say one of them might be king, his brothers and his dad didn't even invite him. They left him out in the field. He wasn't considered great among his brothers. When his brothers went off to war and David showed up because they were facing a giant, they didn't go, oh, we're going to be okay now. My little brother David's here. No, they're like, what are you doing here? You should be with the sheep. He wasn't considered great in his own home. He was a musician and a shepherd, not a prince. He had to be exalted. He had to be lifted up by someone else in order to be great. As he became a king, he was hated by the one who came before him, Saul. 
He was betrayed by his own son, betrayed by his closest advisor. And in the middle of that betrayal and running into the wilderness, what made him great? What made him great? Even as king, as king, we know he abused his power. He amassed wives and concubines, mistreated them and his children. And in his own unrighteousness, was it that he was better than other people that made him great? It certainly wasn't his birthright that made him great. It wasn't his musical talent that made him great. It wasn't his giftedness that made him great. It was what? It was his God that made him great. The believer is great because of the goodness of God. That's it. Not because we're jumping higher, making more, doing more. These things don't make us greater. It's the gentleness of God. Literally, that word that we translate gentle here in the English, it literally means the condescension of our God. Now, we wouldn't say condescending typically in an English translation because somebody might misinterpret that and say that like this massive God is being really condescending, meaning that he's tearing up people, belittling them. But this is the literal picture. When it says makes me great, the word there is, better word in English would be exalt, like lifted up. That what God has done, this massive God, is that he has condescended, he has come low, he's made himself low so that humanity that could not save itself might be lifted up, might be exalted, be made great, survive even. So we have a picture in Psalm 35 of the God of the universe condescending. I used to also teach history. My favorite uh, historical figure is Theodore Roosevelt. He's a madman, great president, genius, but just a total madman. He had a pet badger in the White House. Who, Who does that? Uh, I mean, I could tell Teddy Roosevelt stories all day, but you know, he once got shot when he was doing a campaign speech, uh, an an attempted assassination. And you know, he gave the speech for two more hours before he went to the hospital. Who does that? Like, I'll tell you, if one of you shoots me this morning, I want to go to the hospital. So don't be like, oh, I heard him say he likes being tough. Let's leave him up there. No, let's go. Let's get out of here. But he gave two more hours of a speech. Teddy Roosevelt was a madman. He was also famously busy. His whole day was full of, of speeches and writing and reading and meetings. And, you know, he made decisions for the whole world. That's what he did. He was, uh, he was the president of the United States, notoriously busy. If you read Deep Work or these other books, they'll talk about how busy Theodore Roosevelt was and how did he get so much done. And yet, even though many people could say they voted for him, many people could say they shook his hand, there were some people who could say, that man took time to speak to me. Some men who could say, and some women who could say, that man wrote me a letter. There's a a famous letter that he wrote to a young man who was at Harvard about how things were going at Harvard. He said this, I'm delighted that you play football. I believe in rough and manly sports. Like, that's great. That's a great letter. Hey, I, I love manly, rough sports. It's great. But I do not believe in them if they degenerate into the sole end of anyone's existence. I don't want you to sacrifice standing well in your studies to over-athleticism. And I need not tell you that character counts a great deal more than either intellect or body in winning success in life. Athletic proficiency is a mighty good servant, but like so many other good servants, it's a mighty bad master. Why would the president of the United States, who's so busy, take time out of his busy schedule to write to a college kid about his homework? about playing sports and about, I don't even think I need to tell you, but character is more important than either of those. Why would such a busy man do that? 
I'm sure you've already guessed it, like in your head. It's because he's writing to his son. Teddy Jr. is a student at Harvard, and he's going, hey, hey, son, I care about your homework. I care about football, but more than either, I care about you being a good man. Sometimes people will say to me, understanding God is so powerful and so big. Why would the God of the universe care about what I eat, what I drink, what I smoke, who I sleep with, who I marry? I think God's got bigger things. Shouldn't we just all love each other and accept each other just the way we are? Why would God care about these little details of my life? I'll tell you why. Listen, if the President of the United States, and all of us, it would make sense. We go, well, of course he'd write to his son and care about him. How do you think the perfect Heavenly Father feels about you? If this massive God, we've already said he delights in you, he condescends to know you, is it so hard to believe that maybe he cares about every aspect of your life? That even in the midst of the problem that sees so big, he's like, I'm in it with you. That if you faced your biggest problem, sin and the separation it creates between you and him, that he'd go, I have provided a solution for you. The most beautiful meaning of Psalm 18, verse 35, when we talk about God condescending that we might be exalted, is the truth of the gospel. The gospel is based in this. You need to understand that when we pray, we pray to an all-powerful God, a massive God, but a God who loved you enough to say, I will be one of you. I will make myself small, small as a baby, and I'll be born among you. And then when we think about Jesus, and you can think about Jesus as this kind of short carpenter, Jewish prophet guy, but understand that what makes him truly amazing is that the God of the universe is incarnate in Jesus. And when you see his heart as lowly and gentle, then you see just how this massive, powerful God feels about you and why he would join us on this planet, that you might have a rescue through him. That you might, if you trust in Christ, fear nothing. Hebrews says that we get to walk into the presence of God with not trembling, not, oh no, here comes that fiery mouth and smoky nostril, giant God. Hebrew says we walk into the presence of God with, it says, confidence. Most of us can't walk confidently in front of the mirror. But God said, hey, because of what Jesus did, you can walk confidently into the presence of this God. Why are we confident? Not because you are righteous, because you are loved. And it's his love that makes you and your way blameless. You're, all of us are guilty of sin, but God has made a way to overcome it through his son, Jesus Christ. This powerful God of the universe has made the faithful man fearless. As frail as we are, we're fearless. That's the good news of the gospel, church. That when we pray, we pray to a massive and powerful God who delights in us. And we know he delights in us because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, among us that there might be a way to be with him forever. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're so gracious to Citizens Church. You've brought blessing on blessing in this place. God, we pray that you continue to save among us, that we'd see and hear from people in the baptismal waters that are declaring that they have come to know and trust you. Thank you, God, that you are powerful and that you delight in your people. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, that even today, we could trust in him in the midst of whatever is ailing us, whatever is hurting us, and whatever failures we're trying to address, God. You have been so good to us. So I pray, God, that our worship would please you, that our prayers would be heard by you, and 
that we would trust you regardless of our circumstances. And we know you're bigger than everything we're facing. So God, we entrust you with our whole lives. Lead us, God. You're worthy of our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.